Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Autodidacts podcast. My name is Matt and I'm here with my mate and fellow autodidact, Hutto. How are you today, Hutto? Good day, Matt. I won't tell you about how I am today. <laughs> <laughs> that bad, huh? But it's good to see you. <laughs> you as well. So today we're doing chapter three of Harari's book, Sapiens, and it's titled A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve. Essentially, it's a, a little look into what life was like for our Paleolithic ancestors. So we're past the Neanderthals and all of that now. We're talking about Homo sapiens since the cognitive revolution and the vast majority of our time as Homo sapiens since the cognitive revolution was spent in this Paleolithic era. Correct. Although so, we could point out that they've just come up with some new evidence to suggest we were living with the Neanderthals for perhaps 10,000 years at that time. Maybe yeah. a lot more. Yeah, that's right. So maybe we're all one big happy family and they just got, they just got the flu. We'll leave that for the next chapter. <laughs> so for the vast majority of our time, uh, sapiens have been foragers. We tend to think of ourselves as big, tough, brave hunters, and we did a little bit of that, but it was mostly, mostly foraging. Um, many of our social and psychological characteristics were shaped during this, this long period of time. So we're, we're adapted perfectly to sitting by the river eating fish, Hutto. <laughs> I think that's about right. Um, in fact, in one of the books I've written, this is fundamental to what I'm writing about. If you want to understand how to live a happy, fulfilled life as a human being, yeah. you have to understand that that's what all your emotions yeah. are ordered around. Well, it's interesting. If we, want, if we want to be true to our natures, it's quite difficult in the modern era because our life, our lifestyle is so artificial in a sense, or so not what we're, we're adapted to, to live. Absolutely. I mean, Desmond um, Morris wrote his second book was The Human Zoo, and he hit the nail on the head. Okay. We built ourselves a zoo that we live in. Yeah, okay. So um, our brains are adapted to a life of hunting and gathering, um, not our current post-industrial environment. So how we live now, one of the main advantages is that we live longer. We do. Um, and we do have access to more stuff, more material stuff. Now, the benefits of that are probably debatable. Um, but we certainly have more stuff. And we have access to great books and Wikipedia. We do, yes. Yes, we do indeed. Um, but the downside is we often feel depressed, alienated and pressured, uh, stressed. Yeah. So, hello, are you depressed, alienated and stressed? Living Not in our modern society? You, Matt. What's that? Not when I'm around you. <laughs> um, I've been arguing this for a while, actually. I, 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 I think it might be since I read this book. I first read this book about eight or nine years ago. It did change the way that I think. And uh, I'm, I'm becoming an alternative hippie anti-modernist. Um, not because there aren't some benefits, but because, you know, there are a lot of costs. There are a lot of costs. I, I believe it's largely a question of learning how to manage your being, including your emotions. Mm. Um, but yes, it's, you really do need to be aware of just how artificial this world is we live in. Sorry to interrupt, but you know, I, I have conversations with a lot of people and uh, I have people say to me, oh man, if I didn't have my career, I'd be lost. I wouldn't know what I was doing. And I'm like... Man, you have totally fallen for the trap. 
I mean, this is a lifestyle that we've been living for about 200 years, which is the blink of an eye. Yeah. And a lot of people today just think that's normal. And yeah. if you don't have it, then you somehow or other, you're, you're missing out on life. Now, don't get me wrong, I like money. <laughs> and that's very important, you know, in our society that we currently live in. But, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that, uh, you know, having a career is the be-all and end-all if you're looking for meaning in life. Absolutely not. So another example of how we get kind of trapped by our modern life is that um, we tend to gorge on high-calorie foods, which certainly in, in Western societies, they tend to be very abundant, um, and they're not good for us. Um, so we're actually genetically wired to do that because in, in Paleolithic times, if a Stone Age human was lucky enough to stumble upon a tree laden with ripe fruit, what do you think they did? Do you think they uh, maybe had a bite of one apple and then put the rest in a plastic bag and refrigerator to store for later? Or do you think they got stuck right in <laughs> before the bats and the possums and all the rest of it? I mean, it, this wasn't just us 60,000 years ago. This, this is us going back for... Two million years. Or, uh, yeah, or even further than that. I mean, all animals, all exactly, animals. Exactly, you know. You, yeah. you get the chance to gorge, you gorge. Yeah, you yeah. The wolf pack or uh, <clears throat> the lions. And, uh, you know, we still do it today to the point where obesity is more of an issue than malnutrition in a lot of, a lot of our societies. Sadly so. We've got starving people in Africa and India and we've got great fat hulks moving in other countries. But I console myself in the knowledge that I'm hardwired to be like that, Hutto. You know, that's why I'm carrying a few extra pounds. It's not my fault. Yeah, it's bad management. <laughs> <laughs> um, another, another bit of a difference is uh, between us and the Paleolithic people is that uh, roaming bands of early humans probably, the evidence is a bit thin on this, but probably did not form nuclear families, um, but lived in communal groups. So... Monogamy, in that case, was not the rule. Uh, men and women slept with multiple partners and the children were raised communally by the group. Um, there's, if you study the great apes, there's, right down to marmosuits and you know, yep. the little ones, there's six different structures, family structures, which are commonly used. Oh, okay. Um, and they range from sort of mothers in charge and the guys sort of come in and go out, but the central group is, is all female. Um, so like a matriarchal... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, to, um, to having two, two guys to one girl, that's pretty... to one woman, that's actually pretty rare, but there is actually a group of human beings who also do that because they live in mountainous countryside and they have to carry the children. So having a couple of dads around to do the carrying turns out to be very helpful. Um, and so on. As I say, the six different structures of which the monogamous is, is only one. Yep. And human beings practice all six. Okay. So it's exactly what Harari says about we are able to form cultures which adapt, whereas the rest are genetically hardwired and have one, one structure for the circumstances. Now, our circumstances change too. So, for instance, if a lot of guys are being killed in the wars, yep. you'll tend to find that you've got... Um, one guy with a, with a lot of wives, women, they, they and my understanding was that was has been fairly common over the over the journey. Yeah. For that very reason, a lot yeah. of guys die in, in wars. That's exactly right. Um, but the bottom line is, no, there is no single human 
way of doing things. We are the most adaptable creature on the planet. We use this novel thing in our head mm. to come up with mythologies, etc., and create our own cultures. So this communal raising of the young, apparently that's what chimpanzees and bonobos do. Yeah, and we also see it on things like the South Sea Islands, etc., in lots of other cases. Mm. So in these communities, uh, chimpanzees and bonobos, uh, which we sometimes look at to try and figure out what we used to do back in the day, um, a good mother will make a point of having sex with several different men to increase her chances of having children. Yep. Um, she then has a number of different caretakers for her and for her children. Yep. Because it'll be interesting to know when did, when did humans make the connection between having sex and having children? I mean, they, they were probably doing it for millions of years without realising there was a connection. Well, some humans made the connection quite early. I mean, it's quite clear in eugenicist type stuff, going back a long way. Some, some have almost never made the connection. They figure that the woman needs, needs guys around, but they figure the more guys, the more, the more likely she is to have a good Yeah, so, so maybe they think it's like the male energy around the female yeah, exactly. energy somehow. Yeah. Yeah. They think that they all contribute, which is a great mythology if you're doing the communal support thing. Yeah, and if you believe that, then monogamy, in a sense, would, would not make any sense. Correct. That. Yeah. Okay. So um, this could explain why infidelity and divorce are so common today. I mean, if we're not, I mean, I think it's fairly, it's fairly obvious to me at least that humans aren't built to be monogamous. Because if we were built to be monogamous, we'd be being monogamous. And, and a lot of times we give the pretense that we're monogamous or we want to be monogamous, for sure. But it just doesn't seem to be in our nature. Uh, it's not... It's not hardwired into our nature. Um, it, it is a fairly natural structure for humans, but we've extended it so far, along with all the pressures we put on, mm. we've also taken our nuclear family and in many ways taken them out of the community. Mm. Um, so that's put another pressure on them. It's yep. you know, all or nothing with getting on with your, your mate. Yeah. And then we've extended it. So a relationship that was perhaps reasonably natural for 20 to 30 years is now supposed to allow 60 or 70 or something. But that's assuming that there was a monogamous relationship. I mean, you know, I'd almost take a step further than that and say, look, these long-standing relationships weren't even a thing for a long period of time in a lot of situations. If you're looking at village life, which is the agricultural equivalent of the hunter-gatherer... Well, there's a big difference between agricultural societies and paleolithic yeah, societies. Yeah, but what I'm saying is they basically only met about 150 people. So you weren't getting tempted to go off with all these other attractive women. You knew every woman. You'd been brought up with every woman you were ever going to meet, basically. But that's, once again, that's assuming that you're going off. I and mean, if you're talking about living in a society where there are no monogamous relationships, oh, you, you wouldn't be running off with anyone. Correct, correct. Yeah. Um, so what I'm saying is where there were monogamous relationships, there wasn't a lot of tendency to want to break it. Um, that, you know, these days we meet thousands of other women. Hey, you can swipe right and swipe right again. You know? yeah. The temptations are all out there in multicoloured everything else. A bit like the food that we were talking about earlier. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so there's another school of thought as well which suggests that monogamous couples formed within these larger tribes yeah. rather than it being a free-for-all. Um, so jealousy... 
an exclusivity exclusivity of sexual partners uh, and children was the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, evidence for both arguments is thin. Um, one of the points Harari makes is that we talk about the Stone Age, but we probably should talk about the Wooden Age because most of what they did then was in 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 materials that no longer exist and we don't have evidence for. Yeah. So we, when we think of cavemen, paleo men, we think of Fred Flintstone and everything's built out of rock, but that wasn't really the case. It's just that's yeah. the stuff that's that stayed to, to, to give evidence to us thousands of years later. Um, so evidence for a lot of these things are thin on the ground. Um, so a lot of studies are done on current day nomadic tribes and like we spoke about before, some of our closer relations, chinks, bonobos, how do they do things? You've made the point that we're probably infinitely flexible in how we can behave, and I think that's probably a good point. So there's probably no one-size-fits-all on a lot of this stuff. Possibly all of the above applies in in certain situations. I think it does. The point I'm making is, yes, we're very, very flexible, but there is a cost to it, which is basically stress. Yes. Um, So a lot of these differences between tribes were probably cultural because we were sapiens as opposed to being environmental and a lot of differences were probably due to different shared myths yes um the main point being that since the cognitive revolution there hasn't been a single natural way of life for homo sapiens there are only cultural choices from a vast array of possibilities um so some generalizations can be made or at least we can attempt to make and, and, and some of them are as follows. That, um, just, just, uh, I mean, that was a point he made about we have a spectrum of possible behaviours and then we choose within that spectrum. So we haven't got wings, we can't fly. Yep. Um, but we have a very wide range of possible behaviours from which we select, make cultures, come up with myths and then justify them and come up with wonderful words like, you know, um, these things we hold to be... Clear, obvious, yeah. beyond question. Yeah, self-evident. Yeah, self-evident, which they very much are not. No, I, I agree with that. I've often wondered about that phrasing in some documents over the years. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, yeah. speak to a philosopher about that, they may not, may not necessarily agree with you. Um, so it appears that the vast majority of people lived in small, ba- small bands of several dozen to at most several hundred. And... All these members were humans, which might sound like a funny thing to say. Um, but, so, you know, when we look at modern society, you know, a lot of people have a cat or a dog or you live on a farm yeah. and you've got cows and all the rest of it. Um, but for the vast majority of the paleo period, there were no domesticated animals. And in fact, for the entire paleo period, we only had one exception to that, which was man's best friend, the dog. The dog. So the dog was domesticated at least 15,000 years ago. But we had a lot of time when we didn't have dogs as well. Yeah, that's, so, so that's it was... still very, very late in the day, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Um, so members of a band knew each other well. Um, so you spent your life being surrounded by friends and relatives, which sounds pretty idyllic to me, don't I? Depending on your friends and relatives, exactly. I suppose. <laughs> um, loneliness was rare, but then also privacy was as well. Um... Now, a lot of these bands tended to have friendly contacts with other, some other bands that lived near them because they'd kind of encounter them from time to time and get to know each other. Um, interestingly, I thought, was trade 
did occur between these bands, but yeah. not for staples, so not for meat and, and vegetables and yeah. stuff like that. It was really more for luxury items, like a bit of jewellery or, or whatever it happened to which be. Which you would expect, because your staples, you need to know that they're coming in all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it might be something, you know, probably every band was self-sufficient in the staples, yeah. so you didn't necessarily need to trade it, whereas... You know, if the tribe next door had some skills at painting it, I don't know, painting some jewellery or, or what have you, I don't know what they used to do, but, and you didn't know how to do that, then you probably, you know, it well, probably was to your advantage to the trade. The other thing is there were no, there's no storage going on, you know, you didn't carry your supply of nuts even around with you, let alone squashing yeah. fruit or anything, there were no fridges, etc. So, um, staples, the, the thing about hunter, gatherer, forager, nomadic societies is you carry very little with you and you certainly yeah. don't carry your food supply with you. It seems that a lot of jewellery, for example, was made for burial, so mm. you still didn't carry it around mm. and that seemed to be the main use for it. Um, you would live your whole life without encountering more than a few hundred other humans mm. and yet you'd have a roaming lifestyle dictated by the environment, seasons, and the migrations of animals and plants. When seasons were particularly good, sometimes bands would settle down for long periods of time or even semi-permanently, mm -hmm. if they could get away with it. Um, and the first permanent settlements in history were fishing villages in Indonesia, mm. which occurred as early as 45,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And they were most likely the base for the first sea crossing to Australia. Yeah. Um, gathering was our main activity and provided most of our calories. I, I would actually comment there that I suspect there were quite a lot of fishing villages in Africa and lots of other places. Yeah. Um, but they disappear underwater, rivers move around, all sorts of things. We haven't got a lot of trace for them. The Indonesian... Yeah, most of them are underwater yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, but it makes sense. I mean, if you, if, you, if you live in an area where there's a lot of fish yeah. and you've got the vegetation that you need and the shelter, there's not a lot of incentive to, to leave. I mean, the, the reason you're leaving is because you're chasing animals that are migrating or you know, yeah. the weather gets too bad. But I, my understanding is that the Aborigines, the Indigenous Australians that lived in the Sydney Harbour would just live there all the time yeah, yeah. because there were plentiful exactly resources. So. Yeah. And they had little boats and they'd go out fishing and yeah. all the rest of it. Um, so gathering was our main activity and provided most of our calories. Um, we got, they got to know their immediate environment extremely intimately. Mm. Um, the other thing which we probably don't uh, pay enough attention to these days is that just the sheer amount of knowledge and skills that they had, yeah. as opposed to what we have today. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I probably know a bit about a lot of things, but I wouldn't, if you threw me out in the middle of the desert and said, right, you've got to now live for the next 20 years, I mean, I wouldn't last very yeah. long. And uh, that was one of the things with the Australian Aborigines, you know, they were white men and they came across them basically starving to death in the desert because they're... You know, their supplies were getting low. Yeah. And the Aborigines looked at them and <laughs> looked around the desert and said, but you're sitting here in the midst of abundance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so ancient sapiens had wider, deeper and more varied knowledge, probably than even you and I have, than modern humans have. Um, there is actually evidence that the size of our brains has decreased since that time. 
So maybe we're becoming dumber, Hutto. Uh, it could well be. <laughs> um, so today we know we know infinitely more collectively, but on an individual level, we know less and have skills. Less skills, I should say. Um, the other thing about that happens these days is that unremarkable genes tend to get passed on more easily. And I think a good yeah. example of that is the amount of short-sighted humans that we have yeah. in, in, in wealthy modern societies because it's not a death sentence now. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can just get some glasses and, and have 10 kids and, you know, your kids will be short-sighted as well. Yeah. So in a sense... We might be physically deteriorating as a race. Now, having said that, we're adapting. We're still adapting to our environment slowly, yeah. but our environment just requires more, less yeah. physical I, uh, excellence. I make the point that uh, we've ceased to do natural selection. We're still doing selection, but we're creating the environment. Yeah. And we decide who lives and dies to a large extent. Yeah. Too, you know, you send your best and bravest up to the machine guns. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, in terms of work, so I think I think we've, I think there's a sort of a an image in the in the collective consciousness that uh, you know prehistoric man had it really hard and you know worked like crazy and you know no joy in his life and so forth. Now, a lot of that actually pertains more to time after the agricultural revolution than before it. If you're a peasant, in the agricultural revolution, you, you. Know, you just work, did backbreaking work all day. Um, but apparently, hunters and gatherers used to work less hours than we do today in the modern world. So they, to the, these days, we, you know, in the modern world, we average 40 to 45 hours a week. Um, hunters and gatherers, even in his inhospitable habitats, so the story is that the hunters and gatherers today basically live in in hospitable environments because modern human has taken over the, all yeah. the hospitable environments. And they work about 35 to 45 hours a week, which is around slightly less than what we as modern yeah. humans work. Um, if you're an ancient band living in a hospitable environment, you might have been doing 20 hours, yeah, four hours a day, you know, 28 hours a week. And then you had more time to sit by the river eating fish, which is how I like to put it. So you'd spend a lot more time um, gossiping, telling stories, playing with your kids or yep. what have you, and having sex. Yeah, because one of the things we have to remember is that it was daylight only activities. You know, you didn't generally go hunting at night. You, you, nighttime was a dangerous time to be around. It yes. Was a good time to have your have your fire and gather around it. So you're limited to 70 hours a week to start with for yeah. the main daylight hours. And then how much activity do you spend getting your food out against cooking it, eating it, discussing it? If you live by a river, if you live by a river with plenty of fish, yeah. I mean, you could go and get your fish in an hour. Yeah. You know, then you fill them, cook them up. Bang, laughing. Someone else goes out and gets the veggies. Then, then okay, you might spend a bit of time you know, mending your nets and making a new spear or something. But yeah, yeah but a lot of time would have been spent telling stories yeah. and, and um, raise collectively raising children. And, yeah, and, 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 and I mean, you you can tell stories while you're mending nets. You know, you yeah. gather around and work on it. Don't think. Sounds sounds pretty idyllic to me. Uh, hello. Um, 
Well, it's a far cry from uh, Thomas Hobbes' description of um, you know, the state of nature of a hunter-gatherer is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short, mm. which is the, yeah. the contrast. And that's, that's the cliché. I mean, I think that's what we've always, we always have thought yeah. traditionally. Um, the other thing was nutrition was, was pretty much ideal. So a lot of people, a lot of people like to stick to the paleo diet even today, yes. which is essentially meat, fruit, vegetables, fish, eggs, and nuts—all the things that could be found in in, in the Stone Age world. Yep. And uh, I actually, I actually lived on the paleo diet for about six months, and uh, it was pretty good. You know, like it was easy; I could eat as much as I wanted. Yeah. I felt good, and I, I actually lost a lot of weight as well. Yeah. Well, you know, you didn't. Get as much meat as you might like. And I did eat a lot of meat because that's part of the paleo. I mean, you could argue that you know I probably ate more meat than a paleo person did. Uh, yeah, um, and of course you never got to tuck into a nice tub of ice cream or anything like that. No, that's right. So, um, so diets were varied and nutritious, um, as opposed to the early farmers whose diets were far less varied and nutritious. So, for example, a, a peasant farmer in China would have rice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Um, they were also less vulnerable when one source of food failed. Yes. Because they could move around, and also they had such a varied diet that you know often they could compensate for it. Whereas if a, if a potato crop fails in Ireland, and that's eighty percent of your, your people's food, yeah, then you're in trouble. Um, the other the other big difference is there were less infectious infectious diseases. Most of the diseases, you know, the real killers that we've had in the last ten thousand years have basically been caught from animals, and we basically catch them from having animals living in close proximity to humans. You know, yeah. like if you look at some of these um, these old settlements in um, in Mesopotamia. Yeah. Uh, when civilization started, I mean the, the the cows and stuff would live in the yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the same room as the humans, yeah. and then you know then you start getting cowpox and, and the rest of it. So, all sounds pretty good to me. Okay, <laughs> you can go and do it. <laughs> yeah, well that's right. I don't know how to. Um, so in terms of their spiritual and mental life, um, animism is almost certainly the the, the spiritual belief. Um, that all of these paleo people shared. Yeah. And that's the belief that almost every animal, plant, place, and natural phenom phenomenon has awareness and feeling. Yeah. Right? And can communicate with humans. Anthropomorphization at its extreme, in a sense. So. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, that, yeah, that has done it. I mean, who's to say it's wrong? I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about that in unanswerable questions, I suppose. But yeah, we do have a tendency to anthropomorphise things, such as cloud formations, look like the face of God, and, and yeah, so forth. Yeah, everything's everything's somewhat like us, but yeah. we're better. Yeah. Um, they also had some immaterial entities, things you couldn't see and touch, such as spirits of the dead, or they did have friendly or malevolent beings, so similar to angels and demons. Yeah. Fairies, demons. Um, now, there was no barrier between humans and other beings. The, the, humans were just part of the, of the giant play yeah. you know, amongst the living creatures and the dead. Yeah. Um, these spirits could be communicated with through speech, dance or ceremony. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing about these spirits, these entities, is they were almost always local beings. They, 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 there, was, there was 
seldom a, a concept of a universal God. Well, there's, there's three things which were fundamentally different. One is they had no arrow of time. An agricultural society lives by seasons. Yeah, good seasons point. circularity yeah. of the year. Yeah. Um, by the time you get to Hebrews in the desert, etc., they got a direction, respectively, in Babylon, um, when they got back from Babylon. But the idea was that things progressed yeah. in a direction. Yeah. The hunter-gatherer doesn't. Every day is the same as the last day and will be the next. They're not going anywhere. There's no... I suppose they had some sort of sense of seasonal awareness. Well, they had a seasonal awareness, yeah. but they weren't. Their life wasn't focused on time. And when we get to look at money, it's all about future. Mm. Um, for a hunter gatherer, it's all about the present. You know, how much can I gather to eat today? I'm not trying to build a warehouse or plant crops for the future or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and so that means that since everything is on the same level, whether it's a tree or a river or anything else, we're all just living together in the present, yeah. going nowhere, yeah. and we're all much the same. Yeah. So there's no strict hierarchy between beings. Um, the world doesn't revolve around humans or indeed around gods. No, correct. So <coughs> we're not, since we're not going anywhere and there's nothing special and there's no destination, we're just all... Here together. Sounds and good again, to me. it's obviously local because it's only what's happening locally that matters. Yeah, they, and that's all they were probably aware of as yeah. well. Uh, that's an interesting question too. What was their um, sense of what the world was like? Yeah. And as you probably just stated, it probably didn't matter that much to them. Right. Well, we do know that they had some trade with further off things, but it wasn't something that impacted them very much. Mm. So each belief slash religion... You know, had its differences and was slightly different. So animism is not a specific religion. It's essentially a catch-all term for thousands of, of different religions, cults and beliefs. Yeah. Um, we, we, that, that's opposed to theists, which are more common today. Yeah, um, which is also a catch-all term for anyone that's got an idea of some sort of over-God. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, in terms of socio-political structures, I mean, evidence is, is pretty thin on the ground for this, but, you know, as, as we've spoken about, um, the flexibility of, of humans, different bands probably had different socio-political structures. Well, that's certainly what we've seen when we look at Australian Aborigines or whatever. Yeah. You know, what was going on in different parts of Australia was completely... Yeah, as modern humans, we tend to lump... Um, you know, certainly the Indigenous Australians, we lumped them t together as one people, but there were many different nations. Yes. It was a bit, it's basically like Europe. Yeah. You know, different languages, different cultures, different nations. All of that. Yeah. Um, one size does not fit all, especially no. not when you're talking about human beings. Yes. So, uh, in terms of war, um, modern hunter-gatherer societies have given witness to frequent armed conflict. Yeah. Now... That would that would imply that maybe prehistoric man fought a lot of wars, but um, it's hard to know if that was actually the case because the thing about modern hunter gatherer societies is that modern man is encroaching on their territory and they're probably facing more scarcity and so forth and changes to their lifestyle than what the the prehistoric man was. Yeah. So you know maybe that reflects in more conflict. Um, yeah, I mean we've come into contact with some Amazonian tribes quite lately. Um, yeah. And some of them are extremely warlike. 
right. they had death rates of you know forty to sixty percent of males as a result of conflict. Okay. Others were very much not. They just drifted off following the monkeys, you know, getting meals where they could. Yeah. If they came across another bunch of humans, they were either friendly to them or just sort of waltz around them. Yeah. Um, so it's it's hard to generalise on any of these things, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, so as you as you sort of stated, skeletons have been found with clear marks of violence uh, in the Danube Valley. Four hundred skeletons were found from the pre agricultural era, and eighteen of them showed signs of violence. Yep. So that implies around a five percent death rate from by violent means. Yeah. Which is similar to what we saw in the 20th century, which is actually the most violent century that we've had in modern times. Yeah. Um, Then there have been other finds which show very little signs of violence. Um, So, as we we just stated, the truth is probably... Well, the truth is probably somewhere in between, but the, the truth is probably... Both and all of the above. Yeah, exactly so. Look, uh, the Givaro of Ecuador had nearly 60% death rate due of males due to violence. Mm. And the Brazilian Yana, Yana Momo was nearly 40%. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, death, as he again points out, there is, as a result of war, is usually more connected with things like starvation than direct violence, you know. Mm. The violence is where you're still fighting the war. The losers then get displaced. Well, that's right. So, so of those four hundred skeletons, maybe two hundred of them died eventually yeah. because of war, but only eighteen of them were directly killed in the conflict. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah, and like like just about everything in this era, there is still much to be discovered, or is always going to be unknowable. Correct. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting area, but we're never going to, I don't think we're ever going to know, yeah, know everything about it. Well, unless we manage to come up with things like time machines or whatever. But yeah, well, that's um, true. It's astonishing what we have come up with. Uh, yeah. Working out how magnetic resonance imaging works. And yeah, it's astonishing. What yeah, it is. So it is. who knows what they may come up with in the future, but at present we have no way of seeing a window into it. Yeah. So that's all I have to say about um, A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve up to this point, um, unless you want to add some further um, some further statements. But I do have some unanswerable questions for you. Well, I, I do have one thing, because Harari finishes off that chapter, and this is one... I love the way this guy thinks. He thinks so much along the lines that I've been saying. And He's a lot younger than I am. You know, he, he's, he's so much more advanced in his thinking than I was at his age. It's just not funny. Yeah. Um, so one of the things he says is uh, scholars tend to ask only those questions they can reasonably expect to answer. Mm. And without the discovery of newer research tools or something, we probably never will know what the ancient poetry believed or what political dramas they experienced. Yet it is vital to ask questions for which no answers are available. Otherwise, we might be tempted to dismiss sixty to 70,000 years of human history with the excuse that the people who lived back then did nothing of importance. Yeah. The truth is they did a lot of important things. In particular, they shaped the world around us to a much larger degree than most people realise. 
and he then goes on to give some examples, and we'll be saying much more. Yeah, we talk more about that yeah. in the next chapter yeah. as well. Um, yeah. But this is what I like about his thoroughness. Um, there's an idea around these days that science has answered, you know, all these questions and will, in the next two or three hundred years, answer the rest of them. I actually think that's completely untrue. What science has done is it's answered all the easy questions, by yeah. which I mean it's tackled the areas which are amenable to being tackled by the scientific method yeah. and had great success. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of questions, which areas which are really not very amenable to the scientific method, no. and a lot of them have to do with things like intelligence and cognition and what goes on in the human Well, brain. when we're talking about psychology, I mean, that, that's a, an inexact science even in the modern day. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we're constantly revising history and we're looking at, you know, religious beliefs and stuff of the past, etc. And these are some of the hard questions to which we're not, we're not really getting answers. Technology, you know, mm. we have no theory of technology at present. Um, so I think it's very good that Harari's making the point that we tend to ignore questions that we've got no way of tackling. But that doesn't mean they don't matter. They very yeah. much do matter. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So can I ask you some unanswerable questions now, Hello? And as usual, I expect you to get them 100% right mm. before you can move on to the next chapter. We could be here for a while. Right? Yeah, we could be on these, actually, because I think we might disagree on some of them. Um, is animism true? Yeah, I think we have to redefine our understanding of true here again. <laughs> it, it's again the thing of, you know, our nations and tax returns and, you know, shared beliefs true, is money real? Um, the answer is, at a certain level, animism, I think, is extremely true. Yeah. Um, but it's also, we are projecting a lot of anthropomorphization on stuff. You know, we're conscious, therefore the tree must be, the river must be. Do animals have spirits? Do trees have spirits? Do rocks have spirits? Well, that really gets down to your question of defining spirits, which is mm. another of these tricky areas. There are many words which are useful, even though it's difficult to define them. Yeah. Um, you know, intelligence, awareness, cognition, all these sort of things, they're very hard to decide. I'm attracted to the non-hierarchical nature of, of that spiritual belief as opposed yeah. to the hierarchical nature of modern theistic religions. Yeah, and and, and uh, it's one thing being attracted to it, but it also seems more likely to be true in my little mind. I mean, this is all a belief, of course. I mean, I don't know. But um, it appeals to me, this, this kind of, you know, this way of thinking. Well, the hierarchical beliefs, of course, came in along with agriculture yes. and cities. That, you know, so, so once again, this is human beings projecting yeah. a perspective. Mm. Um, and as you know, I believe you have to look at things from all perspectives. Any one perspective tends to lead you to a false conclusion. Yep. So I think animism taken too seriously as a false conclusion, but that doesn't mean we should dismiss it. It has its truths. Mm. Okay, I'll accept that. That's a pretty good answer. Um, were humans meant to be monogamous? This is a very good question, and I don't like the meant word. Um, there are people who argue from uh, ontology. I, I'm not a fan of ontology. 
Um, I do not see that there is a set designed order for things. Right. Um, and so I would say, no, human beings are very, very adaptable. And monogamy is simply one of the structures we can have. But there are others, they're perfectly viable, mm. and I don't think there's a... Yeah, I think, I think I'm probably being more inclined to think that we, we have a nature, you know, which is what we've become, uh, what we've evolved to become. Yeah. And, and I'm listening to you, and you're sort of saying, yeah, but the main thing that we evolved to become was, you know, extremely adaptable. Yes. And uh, that's an interesting perspective that I probably haven't, um, you know, I, 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 I ate the paleo diet six months because I thought that, that's what I'm supposed to eat. Um, and maybe it's not a good example because maybe that is what we're supposed <laughs> to eat. But um, I think what you're saying is it depends. It depends. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can be monogamous. We can be non-monogamous. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'd say, and I've mentioned it previously, is that... Um, there's so much evidence that we struggle to be monogamous that it starts to seem to me like it's not our nature to be monogamous. I see successful monogamous relationships, but certainly if you are in a situation where the men are being killed due to war or something like that, so you've got three times as many women as men or something, monogamy makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um... Were prehistoric humans happier than us, Hutto? Yeah. Uh, yes, I think quite possibly they were. Um, now, interesting little... Uh, right, five years ago, well, this was written in 2008, so about 2003, members of the Nakuk Maku unexpectedly wandered out of the Amazonian rainforest of San Jose del Guardia in Colombia. The Nakuk Nukak, sorry, were a tribe that time forgot, cut off from the rest of humanity until this sudden emergence. Subsisting solely on the monkeys they could hunt and the fruit they could gather, they had no concept of money. Revealingly, they had no concept of the future either. These days they live in a clearing near the city, reliant for their subsistence on state handouts. Asked if they miss the jungle, they laugh. After lifetimes of trudging all day in search of food, they are amazed that perfect strangers now give them all they need <laughs> and ask nothing from them in return. Yeah. So, yes, they may have been happy-ish, but... <laughs> It doesn't sound like they've got a lot of regrets, that lifestyle. Yeah, see, they can be two different things, can't they? Because a lot of the happy, you know, you look back at some of the struggles in your life and you go, you know, that was actually a really good time in my life. You know, I was quite happy then. Yeah. Um, my answer to it would be, I suspect they were happier in the moment. But that doesn't mean we'd swap our current lifestyle for it. because Because our current lifestyle is easier and it's safer. And those are two things that we value pretty highly. It's definitely safer. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely easier in terms of getting up in the morning. Yeah, in, in certain ways. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tougher. I think it's tougher emotionally. And, yep. you know, we pay the price in terms of alienation and we unhappiness do, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Very high levels of stress. We are constantly using our intellect to try and tell our emotions that 
you know, no, we're not going to do that because that's not... We're constantly living outside of the present moment. That's really what modern society compels us to we do. We certainly do that. I mean, it's all based on future and how mm. much is in my past. And even past, hang-ups of the past, yeah. from the past. And we're living in this huge mythology, Yeah. Um, you know, that money matters and yeah. national accounts matter and yeah. all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're living with cleanliness is next to godliness and all that sort of thing. So I think in terms of... I think we are far more stressed yep. nowadays than they were. And not being stressed, you know, we'd like a break and time out and things like that just to... And we're more alienated as well. I mean, I don't spend my whole life with my family and friends. No. Like I would have done 20,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, the, the, the risk of that is if you fall out with your family and friends, then you're in in big trouble, whereas now you can do that and still get by. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, what we have now is so much documentaries or just, you know, Game of Thrones, whatever. Um, apart from a few stories that they told around the campfires, you know, they were very limited in... Mm. I think they had pretty rich and interesting lives, though. But admittedly, in the book, they did compare it to agricultural peasants, which had extremely boring and absolutely and poor lives. That's that's the pits of the life. Yeah, really. yeah, um, yeah. So it's certainly much better than your agricultural peasant. Yeah, I mean, we're li we're living in a good age. I mean, even if you go back 150 years ago, if you're working in a factory 16 hours a day, I mean, that's a pretty crap life. Yeah, and that's not long ago. You yeah. know, we we you know we're now here in the 21st century and. You know, it's not too bad. No, even if you, even in a in a rich country, even if you are below the poverty line, you can have internet access, you can have running water, you yeah. know, you can have a full belly. Um, you don't have as many choices as if you've if you're above the poverty line, but you can still live a relatively good life in a sense. But we do compare ourselves with the Joneses and then get unhappy because of, of, because of that. Um, look, there are billions of people who don't simply have enough to eat, let alone. You know, when you get toothache and stuff like that. And, you know, yeah. it's toothache is really, really nasty. Well, prehistoric people, I don't think, got a lot of toothache because they Far didn't eat sugar. less because they didn't get much sugar. Yeah. Right. Um, but if you got it, you got it. You know, there wasn't a lot you could do about it. Yank, yank the tooth out, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, if your eyesight did start fading or stuff like that, you couldn't Well, you paid a price. You sprained yeah. your ankle on the rock and then you had to get left behind. Done right. Um, mm. Yeah. So... Lots of trade-offs, but in terms of general stress and how you felt, definitely somewhat idyllic because you were living the lifestyle your emotional makeup was... I think we need to sell everything and buy a place by the river, Hutto, and just uh, sit by the river and eat fish. Yeah. Um, or would you rather make a million dollars? No, I, I was thinking perhaps you'd become a guru and let them make the place by the river and I'd just sit there and tell them about fish. <laughs> That sounds more like more like your cup of tea. <laughs> um, all right, so that's it for my unanswerable questions. Um, I'm happy to wrap up. Is there anything you wanted to say? No, we go? I think that's good. I liked your questions as usual, Matt. And well, they're the questions that come to me as I'm reading the chapter, and uh, uh, yeah, I find there's some value in, in in chatting them. I like yeah, that's my favourite bit: chatting the, expecting you to answer unanswerable questions. Um, so with that, we'll, we'll call it a podcast and um, thanks everybody for, for joining us. Thank you, Hutto, for your time and trouble. I hope people are getting as much out of this as we are. Yeah, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you next time. Okay, see you, mate.